Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We, of course, are continuing our series from Isaiah. So this morning we are in the 35th chapter, Isaiah 35. We will be looking at all 10 verses of this chapter. Now, I don't know if the pandemic has accelerated the trend or not, but it seems like more and more people are putting a lot of time and energy and money into turning a portion of their backyard into an outdoor living space. I don't know if you have one of those or not, but it includes oftentimes a a grill, of course, maybe a fire pit, some cool chairs to to sit in. Sometimes there's a television mounted somewhere and countless other things. Uh, I remember when we first moved here, uh, when we were looking for a house, there was one particular house uh, that we looked at that the backyard was beautiful. I mean, there was greenery and shrubs and, uh, and just a great outdoor living space. And had the bedrooms been a little bit bigger in that house, we would have probably chosen it because we just fell in love with the backyard, though I'm quite confident I wouldn't have been able to keep it up uh, over the years. And yes, if you're interested in this kind of thing, there are television shows on HGTV that will give you some great ideas, though I've not watched them. In fact, I've blocked HGTV from my televisions because all that means is work. Uh, It just gives ideas of things I am expected to do. But pandemic or not, we want a place where we can go and have some privacy and some peace. We do that in the summers at the beach or the lake, but that involves a little more time and certainly a lot more money. And so the backyard has become a space where a lot of people go to daily retreat from life. And this morning, I want to talk to you from Isaiah chapter 35 about what I'm calling a garden oasis. Now, an oasis is a fertile area in the desert, so it is unlike anything that surrounds it. And of course, you know that Israel is largely a desert. And so an oasis in the desert would be a welcome and refreshing site in that particular landscape. But a garden oasis is defined as a place that is more pleasant and peaceful than that which is around it. So it is a beautiful spot, but not just a beautiful spot. It is a place to get away from everything that surrounds us so that we can refresh spiritually and emotionally. So whether or not you have that kind of place, I do know that there is coming a day when every believer will have that kind of place and will dwell there forever. Your current oasis, your current garden, might be a brief retreat, a foretaste of the future, but I promise you it will not compare to what we see in our text. For this will be not just a place where we can retreat occasionally to wind down and relax, but this will be our eternal dwelling. Now, we're going to bounce around a little bit in this text today rather than going exactly verse by verse. But we're going to talk about six things that we're going to find in this garden oasis. Now, I know that in most gardens, you think about fresh vegetables, but that is not what we are going to be talking about this morning. 
Nor are we going to be discussing your particular favorite flower and when they bloom, though we are going to see there is going to be plenty of beauty in this particular garden. So we're not going to be talking about cucumbers or azaleas. We are going to be talking about something much more significant. So even while you remain seated in the sanctuary or watching online this morning, either because of the pandemic or the blizzard that we went through overnight, so whether you're here or whether you're walking, watching online, I want you to go with me somewhere this morning in your mind. Now, I know that's a dangerous thing to do because some of you do that every Sunday. Some of you go someplace else every week. This morning, I'm asking you to go someplace with me. Now, by now, you might think we've been in a tennis match. I mean, every week, it's either in the future or the present. We're back and forth. Our heads are on a swivel. This morning, we're going to be largely in the future again. But I'm not going to leave you there. As we conclude, I'm going to bring you back and say why this matters in the present. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 35, all 10 verses. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become wheat, reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray." No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, celebrating or uh, with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All right, so what are we going to find in this garden oasis, this place of retreat where we will one day dwell. Well, number one, we're going to find the beauty of God. Multiple statements in this text talk about the desert being transformed into a garden. And again, you'll remember that Israel is largely a, a desert. And in fact, if you ever go there, it might surprise you to see a large part of the landscape and yet try to reconcile that with the idea that the Bible calls it the promised land or a land filled with milk and honey. Because so much of it is desert, dry and hot, and certainly in that respect, not beautiful to look at. And even the river in the promised land that is a major source of water for them, the Jordan River, 
is not a beautiful river like we have flowing through the heart of our own city. And so a desert, for most of us, a wilderness is not a very desirable place to live. It is not hospitable for living. In fact, had we looked at chapter 34, we would have seen a description of the wilderness and the wild animals that live there in abundance. But instead, in chapter 35, we are in the garden of God where the desert has been transformed with abundant blossoms. Verse 2, Lebanon is a place that is well known for its cedars. In fact, that is where Solomon got his cedars for the building of the temple. Carmel and Sharon were areas by the sea known for their fertility. So while we read over that and those place names sort of go over our heads, we don't know much about them, all three of them speak to a place of abundance, a place of fruitfulness. And then in verse 7, we see the hot sand turning into pools of fresh spring water and grasses sprouting up where jackals used to dwell. And again, in chapter 34, jackals are there inhabiting the wilderness. But in chapter 35, where we have this garden, the jackals are gone and grasses, flowers are growing up in their place. Now, many of us like living in this part of the country because of the beauty of creation that surrounds us. We can go to countless waterfalls as my wife and I did this past Friday. And we can see the beauty of the mountains and the sun-filled days at the lake that we enjoy. But in the desert, water is not just a thing of beauty. Water is symbolic of life. It is essential for living, and it is hard to find in the desert. So when it is found, it is, it is symbolic of life. If you watch any of the various survival shows that are on television, you will know that one of the first things that they must secure in order to survive in the wild is a clean source of water. That's one of the first things they have to figure out. Otherwise, their days are going to be very brief. So the repeated images of water here are not just to give us a beautiful picture, though it does do that. It is symbolic of life and the abundant life that we will have. Jesus himself said that he came in order to give us not just eternal life, but an abundant eternal life. And we are going to see that here in the beauty of God. So while we marvel at God's creation, and several people posted over this past week about the sunrise. There were some beautiful sunrises and sunsets this week. And while we marvel at that and talk about the beauty of God's creation, it does not compare to what we see in this garden oasis. So there we find, number one, the beauty of God. Number two, and this is the most important of all of them, the other five would not exist were it not for number two. And number two is the presence of God. If God were not here, we would not find all of the others. Now, I do need to talk briefly about the setting that Isaiah is writing about here. Is he talking historically? That is, is he talking about when they come back from Babylon, from their captivity, they will come to Zion singing? Or is he talking about a future state like heaven or the redeemed earth that we are going to dwell in forever? Or is this all a spiritual picture of what is to come and not to be taken literally? 
Or maybe it is a portion of all three of those. Certainly we can see that there are aspects in this passage that cannot have been fulfilled in the return of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity because it is such a beautiful picture that it goes beyond that. So there is enough here to teach us that this is a future state, though some of it might have applied historically to the Israelites, this is largely a future state in which we will dwell, the kingdom of God. At the end of verse 2, we see the glory and majesty of God. The word they must refer to the Israelites here, the people. It's not the creation that has been personified. So they and we will dwell in the presence of God, which is in essence the definition of heaven. Now, when you and I think about heaven, we often think about pearly gates, streets of gold, and wonderful reunion with family members who have gone on before us. Sometimes you even hear people talking about what we do in heaven. You know, they talk about somebody fishing or playing golf in heaven. And so we don't know all of these things. Some of this is biblical and some of this is mere speculation on our part, but none of it compares with the fact that God is going to be there. That is the essence of heaven. It is not primarily about family reunions or the decor. It is primarily about the fact that God will be there and we will enjoy his presence. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He asked for that. And God would not allow him to totally see his glory. So he hid him in the cleft of a rock and passed by and allowed Moses to see just a glimpse of his glory. We see the same thing in other passages of Scripture. For example, the three disciples that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, a passage we looked at some time ago. They got to see a glimpse of the glory of God. Perhaps even Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, and he sees Jesus in heaven, gets to see a small portion of the glory of God. But all of those things were veiled. We will one day see all of that unveiled. We who are now seeing partially will then see completely. In this garden oasis, the veil of God's glory and majesty will shine such that no other light is necessary because he will be the light of heaven. His presence will be there such that there will be no temple. It will not be needed because he will be there. And words certainly cannot adequately describe for us this morning, nor our imaginations think about what all of this is going to mean. You know, if I didn't have my contacts in right now, I wouldn't be able to see any of you. I mean, I would, it would just, this whole room would just be a blur. And I would not be able to read the notes that are in front of me to continue my sermon. So I know a little bit about what it means to see very dimly. Because without corrective lenses, I am practically blind. And so I also know what it means when I put those lenses in and everything becomes much sharper, much more in focus than what I saw without those lenses. And that's what it's going to be for us spiritually one day. We who see darkly and dimly now. We get portions of the glory of God in his creation and in his people and in recreating us into his image. But that day, all of it will come into focus and we will see not only the beauty of God, we will be in the very presence of God and his glory and majesty will be on full display. All right, number three, what else are we going to find in this garden oasis? We're going to find thirdly, the deliverance of God. The second half of verse 4 says that God will come 
which from our perspective is always a good thing. Though, of course, as you'll see there, there is a severe downside for others. We rejoice every year at Christmas and celebrate the fact that God came the first time in the person of a baby in the incarnation. We continue to wait expectantly for him to fulfill his promise that he is coming again. And when he does, we will experience his complete deliverance. Now again, I know that's not a statement that's true for everybody. Because if you look at verse 4, the next thing it says after God's coming is not for deliverance, but it is for vengeance or for judgment. And that is a side of God that many don't believe. Others choose to simply not think about or ignore. But we've seen throughout this series that for those who are still the enemies of God, when that happens, those who are still separated from God, when he comes again, they will not experience a garden oasis, but they will experience eternal punishment. But for those of us who do know him, he will come to deliver us from all evil and all sin and plant us in this paradise. Now, I'm not going to go over verses 5 and 6, the physical results there, because we looked at that last week. It's virtually identical to some of the verses we talked about last week. But drop down to the last two verses. And in those last two verses, I told you we're going to jump around in this text. But in those last two verses, we see some wonderful words that are virtually synonymous. We are, first of all, redeemed, which means we've been bought back. Redeemed means to gain possession by the means of some payment. And spiritually speaking, that payment was the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, paying the penalty for our sins. Therefore, as believers, he has purchased us, and therefore we belong to him. And then we see the word ransom in the last verse there. It's very similar to redeem, though this time it includes the idea or the connotation of slavery or being a prisoner. We still use the term to talk about money that is paid to buy someone back. That is, someone is kidnapped, they are kidnapped for a ransom. And so a, a number is given and somebody has to pay the ransom price in order for that person to be free. Now, there was an occasion in Jesus' day where he was talking about some of this. And the Israelites, some Israelites, the religious leaders said to him, we've never been a slave to anyone, evidently forgetting their own history. Well, that might be what you think to yourself this morning. I've never been a slave. I've never been in bondage. And yet the Bible says, indeed, you have been. We were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin. And we could do nothing about it. But Jesus ransomed us by paying the price with his sinless life. Again, that's why the sinlessness of Jesus is such an important doctrine. Because if he had sinned, then he would have to atone for his own sin, and he could not atone for ours. But because he was sinless, he could pay the ransom price that God demanded and pay the penalty for our own sins, redeeming and ransoming us. So this is the dual nature of salvation, the already and the not yet, as theologians talk about it. In one sense, we have already been delivered. That is, the moment you and I were saved, whether that was yesterday or whether it was 50 or 80 years ago, we have been delivered from our sin because our penalty has been paid for. 
But there is another sense in which we will not be fully delivered until we see Christ. And in that place, he will have delivered us from the very presence of sin and from the very power of sin so that it is no longer effective upon us and there will be no temptation. And that day, we will be in this garden fully delivered by God. All right, so number four. And number four is really not in the garden. Number four is on the way to the garden. And number four, we see the way of God. This way of holiness, according to verse 8, a highway of holiness. And next week when we look at chapter 40, we're actually going to see some very similar terminology where it is called the way of the Lord because it is Christ who is leading us on this way. Now, we actually looked at verses 8 through 10 several years back when I did a very brief series on holiness. But we talked more specifically about the topic of holiness rather than these three verses. Now, we know that the Bible commands us to be holy because God is holy. And the word essentially means to be set apart, to be separated from that which is common. And that is why you see in the temple in the Old Testament, there were holy things that were to be used only for the worship of God. They were not to be used for anything else. That's why they had holy bread that was to be used only for the priests. It was not for common use. And so it applies to people as well, meaning that we have been set apart from the world. We are different from the rest because we are not common, but we are holy. And so there is this positional use of holiness where God simply declares us to be holy. We are set apart because we belong to him. But then there is a practical use of the word holy, meaning that we are to strive to be what we are already declared to be. God says you are holy, but at the same time, he commands us be holy. So we are to strive to be more like him. That is, we are to forsake sin and strive for holiness. So even though we've been saved by Christ or delivered, as we've just talked about, even though we, have a, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, we are nowhere near perfect and are to continue to strive toward holiness. Now, the case in this picture is not a striving for holiness. This is a picture of perfection. After we've been completely delivered, we are on this highway of holiness, and we are walking this path or this way of God, which is holy, because it is a place where the unclean will not be. Now, verse 8 is a little bit strange if you want to look at that again. It says, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Well, what does that mean? That's a, that's a difficult phrase. That last phrase of verse 8 is a difficult phrase to accurately interpret and translate because it can be taken several ways. Some say it means that the way or the path will be so simple, it'll be so clear that even a fool would not go astray because God is going to make it just that clear. Others take it to mean that fools will not wander onto the path, which I realize sounds like the exact opposite of what I just said, and that is because of an interpretive issue here where the words in the original can go different ways. So your Bible might actually have a footnote of the alternate translation there for that phrase. So whether the foolish will be there or not, I guess in some sense depends upon whether you're going to be there or not. 
See, if you're paying attention, I just called you a fool. And you weren't paying attention, so you didn't catch that. But regardless of whether there's going to be fools there or not, I think it's better that we strive for holiness rather than foolishness. Now, I do want to make one more important point here on this way of God. It is the way of God, which means it is an exclusive way. It is not one option among many. Now, I realize that in our day and age, when all beliefs or any beliefs are deemed to be equal, we don't like an exclusive thing. We want many ways to God, and that is what most people believe, that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter what direction you take, all roads lead to God, and all roads are equally valid, or so we are constantly told. And while that might be a heartwarming belief that tends to cross barriers and bring down divisions, it is not what the Bible says, which means in reality, it is not a heartwarming idea. It is instead extremely dangerous. This, this passage itself is clear enough, this highway of holiness where the unclean will not be. And there are other passages of Scripture that are equally clear. In fact, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Now, there were times that Jesus spoke in parables. And there were times that people didn't understand the parables, times when the disciples said, will you tell us what this parable means? And there were even times that he spoke in parables for the express purpose of misunderstanding. That is, he didn't want some people to understand. There are also times in Scripture where the Bible is, I don't want to say unclear, but I just mean it's, it's so spiritual that we have, time, we have a hard time understanding it. For example, when Jesus says, abide in me, so what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus? But when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that is extremely clear. It's not a parable that has multiple interpretations. It is not a statement that is hard to understand. It is extremely clear when he says, I am the way, there are no other ways. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as we saw last week, he is the potter, we are the clay. We don't have the right to make up our own way. We don't have a right to say to the potter, there's got to be other ways. That's the only fair thing to do. It is God who makes the rules because it is God who made us. And the way of God is very clear. It is a way of holiness that is only through Jesus. Well, let's move to our next thing. What else are we going to see in this garden oasis? Verse 9, we are going to see the security of God. Now, this is some similar terminology to what we've seen before. In fact, you might even say it is somewhat contradictory. Because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the lion and the lamb lying down next to each other. And now this text says the lion's not even going to be there. Well, again, we mentioned last time that all of this could be speaking figuratively. So when it talks about the lion and the lamb lying down together, that's a picture of peace. The predator and the prey are no longer at each other. They are dwelling together in peace. And here the picture is also peace, but even more so it's security. There's going to be no dangerous animals or danger period present. No ravenous beast will be there. Now such a secure place with no external threats is again difficult to us, for us to visualize. Again, we're still in that future place. We're still visualizing. We're not here anymore. We're there. And this is hard for us to visualize because we live under constant threat. 
And truthfully, we would have to admit that even though we live under constant threat, we are far better off than most people around the world. But we lock our doors when we're not home. We lock our doors when we are home because we live under constant threat. My car doors are always locked. Anytime I'm not in that car, it is always locked. Even though there's nothing valuable in it, and quite frankly, it wouldn't break my heart if you stole my car. I still lock it. It's just a habit I learned in Memphis. If you've ever been to Memphis, you learn to lock your cars. We're on constant alert because there's always danger hanging around. We're on constant alert with our electronic devices because someone is trying to hack in them. The world is simply a dangerous place in many respects, but not the world to come. Again, I said the presence of God is important, and because God is present there, we will be secure. Even now, we are promised that nothing can get to us unless God allows it, which means we will face difficulties in this life, but God will be present with us through it. But in that place, there will be no danger, for we will be forever secure. All right, the last thing we see in this garden, not that there's not other things there, but the last things we see in this text is here we find the joy of the Lord, or the joy of God. Glance over this passage with me. Verse 1, we find the words glad and rejoice. Verse 2, the word rejoice is found again. Verse 6, the tongue of the mute is now able to speak and his song is filled with joy. Verse 10, we find both the words everlasting joy and gladness and joy. In fact, that word in verse 10, it could be translated overtaken rather than obtain. And the imagery is that joy has been just out of reach for us. I know we have it sometimes, but this, this everlasting joy has just been out of reach. But finally, in this place, we have overtaken it. It is out of reach no longer, and we now possess it in abundance. You also see in three separate verses that someone is singing because of their joy. Now, I realize that we don't always sing out of joy. There are sections or genres of music, like in the church, we sometimes have songs of lament. We don't do it as much as we used to, but there are songs of lament. In the secular world, there are blues. That is, we sing the blues. But more often than not, when we sing, we are doing so because we are filled with joy. We are happy. And the joy of the Lord is accompanied by singing of praises to God. It is why we sing songs in our worship service. We don't do that just because we want to sing. We do it because it's prescribed in Scripture as a natural response to our joy in the Lord. Because we are thankful and joyful for our salvation, we sing praises to God as a result. And surely in this place, in this time, we are going to do that in far greater measure than we do now. Because in this life, there are times of joy and times when we're not so joyful. But in that day, there is going to be everlasting joy that will be ours forever. All right, now I said earlier that I wasn't going to leave you in the garden. You might want to stay there, but the truth of the matter is we can't live there, at least not now. So I'm calling you back now. I'm saying, let's come back to the sanctuary. Let's come back to our computer screen. Let's come back to reality and say, okay, now what? 
given all of those promises for our future, how are we to live now? I mean, in the face of pandemics and violence, anger and frustration, heartache and headache, physical illnesses and even death all around us, all of our lives. You say, well, you just blew what was until that point a decent sermon. Had you just left us in the future with all of that glory, we could have walked away here, from here happy. But now you're talking about all of the things that are around us. The truth of the matter is, we are to live faithfully in the present with the promises of the future. That's why we've been going back and forth in this series. It's why we've looked at the promises of what's to come and yet come back to the present reality in which we live. So what does this mean? Well, look at verses 3 and 4 again. Because in the midst of this, Isaiah tells us what to do in the present. Verse 3, we are to encourage one another, strengthen the weak, and stabilize the feeble. I don't know what you've done with your uh, stimulus money so far, but I used mine to buy a treadmill. And so I've got it, Lauren moved out, so now I've got an extra room at the house, and I put a treadmill in there. And it comes with a year's subscription to what, what they call iFit, which means on the little screen there, I get personal trainers. I, I've run all over the world. It's wonderful. I'm not just running in my room. I'm running all over the world, seeing scenery and learning history as I run with these personal trainers that are running with me. And they are the greatest encouragers. In fact, sometimes I think it's a little over the top because they're constantly telling me how well I'm doing. They're constantly telling me how great it is that, I, that I'm staying with them and encouraging me to keep up and finish the race, even though they have no idea what I'm actually doing. They keep on encouraging. And that's what we're seeing here spiritually, that we are to gather together for, in part, the purpose of encouraging one another to finish the race. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. You have a wonderful future that is to come. So even though there are struggles in the present, keep at it. And then the second thing we see is very similar. He says, be strong. Don't become weak amidst all of the chaos that is around us. Which, of course, I understand is easy to say and yet much harder to apply. But God is coming. Our future is glorious. So stay strong in the present. And then finally, do not fear. Encourage one another. Be strong. And do not be afraid. Now, we looked last week at fear. And it was the different kind of fear. Because we saw that even Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. And so we said there's a sense in which fear is reverence or awe. That's a good kind of fear that we are to have. But here we're commanded not to have the bad kind of fear. We have no reason to fear because our delight is in Jesus. So we are not to fear men. We are not to fear circumstances. We are not to fear the future. All of these things are in the hands of God. So fear the Lord, yes. But there is no reason to fear anything or anyone else. So be encouraged, be strong, fear not, because our future is indeed glorious. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the promises of your word that we can't even fully imagine. Even though we've tried to go there in our minds this morning, we cannot fully picture all that you have in store for us. And yet, we thank you for giving us glimpses of what we have to look forward to. And I pray that those promises, those glimpses would be enough to help us to encourage one another to remain strong
and fear not, for you are with us, and we will dwell with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond.